1: The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening to these
2: episodes, do you realise you've wasted over 39 hours of your life? Carry on! Hi guys, welcome to the latest episode of Slaughter. We stopped counting. We, did we, we stopped caring. It. No one's had a wash before we got here today. <laughs> no. I had a strip wash. I did have a bath but I didn't wash my hair. Alright, show off thankful that it's a podcast <laughs> so i'm gonna give you my story first i'm gonna give it to you this story is a gift to you oh thank you so this gift of a of half an hour it goes back to 18th century london where an exotic man called george Salmanaza was causing a stir with his book about his former life and adventures in the far-off island of Formosa. Mm.
0: What's
1: which is... the things I've never heard of here?
2: Well, Formosa is now known as Taiwan.
1: Oh, I've heard of that. Yes.
2: So That's his, where all my
1: things are made. <laughs> his
2: stories of savages shocked and entertained the British public for years until after his death when he brought out a tell-all memoir and people were to discover that things weren't exactly what they seemed. So... His name, as I said, is Salmanazar. It is a made-up name. Oh. So I'm not going to feel bad about saying it wrong <laughs> throughout the podcast. So George Salmanazar was born in 1679, somewhere in France, the exact location. And his, Nobody a, knew. Yeah, and his actual real name, his birth name, is still unknown. His parents were both Catholics and... They seem to live in. They must have separated because they were living in separate countries. Yeah, they must have separated. That's some long distance. I think there's a. That was a clue. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so George attended a free school run by monks, like a boarding school, and later he'd go into like a Jesuit college. And the Jesuits are just like a sect of the Roman Catholic so he, Church. he
1: didn't spend time with either of his parents? No,
2: he was like growing up with the Catholic monks pretty much.
1: That can cause long-term damage and psychological harm in later life if you don't form an attachment with a caregiver.
2: I'm sure those monks formed a pretty good attachment.
1: <laughs> They're good <laughs> at that, an right? accusation here. I'm not They're making not an Catholic.
2: accusation. I'm <laughs> just saying they enjoy building relationships with their students. Okay. Watch The Keepers. So so he had a typical religious-based education, which was mostly Latin, theology, with some sort of general studies thrown in there. So all the things you need to live an honest life. Clearly. (laughs) So he left school at 15 and decided that he would travel back from school to his mum's house, uh, but obviously he didn't have any means to do so, and it was quite a journey, so he was going to have to beg and hitchhike his way there. So he thought it was going to be best if he had a sympathetic cover story while he was travelling. I mean, I would have thought that a 15-year-old on his own walking to his mum's house was enough. But he decided to steal a pilgrim's cloak from the church and told people that he came across that he was a theology student who was on a pilgrimage to Rome. And to add a little more drama to it, he said that he was from the furthest point in Europe that he could think of ireland (laughs) so he knew absolutely nothing about ireland uh, so anyone who did would have been able to expose him but he thought this was a much more interesting story when he got to his mom she couldn't support him and so sent him off to his dad's which was around an 800 kilometer walk to his father's home in germany
1: holy shit
2: well, I, get, I would hope that he did a bit of hitchhiking along the way, but even that's a little horse and cart. You might as well be walking alongside of it. His father was also too poor to offer him much of a start in life. So Salmanaza made his way to Holland. So to protect him in his story, he decided to come up with a country that was a lot further away. So this time he started telling people he was from Japan. And he'd said that he chose this because Westerners at the time had been barred from entering Japan since 1690. So it was unlikely that anyone was going to be able to fact-check his claims. He's there. Um, I'm just going to add at this point, I should have mentioned at the beginning, that this story comes from one of my favourite books that I've mentioned before, um, Fakers, Forgers and Phonies by Magnus Magnussen. So, oh, good old Magnus. He's in there today. So on this journey he presented himself as a he's a 16-year-old articulate latin speaking pagan from japan who lived off raw flesh roots and herbs and he was really having to look after himself but he thought obviously they didn't know anything about the japanese so this sort of gave him this air of like a civilized savage that yes he ate raw meat but that was because of his japanese ancestry He also had said that he had lots of adventures on this journey, including being thrown in jail as a spy, which I would have thought it was more likely that he was actually thrown in a lunatic asylum considering he was a blonde French boy claiming to be Japanese and eating meat on the roadside. And he eventually, though, enlisted in the army because they'll have had fucking anyone.
1: (laughs) Clement fodder. Yeah. Aww.
2: Although, so when he was in the army, though, his entertaining stories and his tall tales they made him really quite popular so he was doing quite well at this point. In 1702 his regiment was sent to the Netherlands to fight to regain some territories that had been once Spanish and now French so England at the time were also fighting against France and Spain so this is how he came into contact with an influential person in his life. In 1703, he came to the attention of a young man and ambitious reverend, Alexander Innes, and he was serving as a chaplain to the regiment of the Scots Brigade, posted in the same area of the Netherlands as Salmanazar. He ingratiated himself with this reverend of the Church of England, basically by slagging off Catholics. <laughs> so he said that Jesuit missionaries had abducted him from his home in Japan and forced him to convert to Catholicism, so Innes was intrigued, but he wasn't completely fooled. So he asked Salmanazar to translate um, a text from Cicero into Japanese, which he just so started
1: going, dong, dong, just to try and fool him. Yep.
2: <laughs> Pretty much. So he just did basic yen, yeah. 70s racist gibberish, <laughs> full of it. However, Innes then said, Right, oh, can you just do that again for me? And of course, he couldn't do exactly the same no, thing right, twice. No. So he was rumbled. But Innes didn't expose him. Instead, he saw an opportunity for them both to benefit. So Innes had him baptized into the Anglican church and bought Salmanaz's discharge from the army and started grooming him for some plans that he had over in London. Mm-hmm. We'll get into England, it's happening. Yeah, don't worry. It's legit. Legit UK. So firstly, he said, right, you're gonna have to drop the Japan thing basically because I think a lot of people know about Japan. But he decided to make it an even more remote and unknown island that he came from called Formosa, which I mentioned at the beginning is now Taiwan. And at the time, there actually was quite a bit of information about it, but neither of them really bothered to check. They just thought, that sounds even further. (laughs) So Innes then wrote to the Bishop of London... And he was known for being a really zealous and fierce opponent of the Roman Catholic Church. Absolutely hated them. So he was really powerful and he had control over military chaplaincies. He was a big cheese. So Innes told him how the Catholics had abducted Salmanazar and when he refused to convert to Catholicism, they threatened him with torture. But he held strong and was now converted to the Church of England and he was going to be this big champion and this really impressive conversion story. So the bishop lapped it up. He was like, he's going to be the poster child for like anti-Catholics. And he asked the Innes bring the young man back to London. So summer of 1703, Salmanazar was presented as the Formosan nobleman to the bishop and he brought with him a gift. So it was the Church of England Catechism, And he translated it into Formosan, which of course was a totally made up writing by Salman Azar, which is quite impressive. He actually, you can see pictures online of the whole alphabet that he's made. Oh, well, I say impressive, like I could come up with 26 squiggles, I guess, (laughs) but it looks kind of legit. You'd believe that it was like a, some symbolic alphabet. So Salmanaza became a sort of celebrity in the London social circles and he was telling his fantastical tales and stories of his former life in Formosa that sold him as this civilised savage. So he told them how he'd practised cannibalism and that it was permitted for a husband to kill and eat an adulterous wife which was no big deal because in Formosa they practised polygamy.
1: Mm. So
2: he had loads of wives to choose from. Also not true, but that's what he said. Yeah. and I, mean,
1: it, I reckon it would be quite interesting listening to him. Like, if you don't know much about the world. Oh, yes, that'd yeah. would be a brilliant night out. Yeah, and it totally fed into what they loved. Like, it was
0: in the like, 1700s. We're the yeah. yeah,
2: we're the best. Like, these far-flung corners of the world where everyone's barbaric and yeah. savage. And it does, definitely. So he would later write a book would describe this practice of cannibalism in more detail so basically he tells a story of how this woman had been found guilty of treason against the king of the tribe i assume and so they hung her on a cross nailed her to a cross to crucify her but to extend it they kept feeding her so that she would stay alive for as long as possible they said about after 30 days or something she eventually died he said, in the culture of Formosa, the body is the property of the executioner. So they would then chop up the body and sell the meat, and it was a, considered a delicacy. And he said that this was a plump 19-year-old woman who had been fed consistently on this cross, so it was the nicest meat ever.
1: I don't think weathered old cross meat would be that nice. 30 days? I mean... It... I watched the thing about, like, the dry-aged steaks. I was going to say, it would be like beef jerky. Yeah. Apparently
2: he said the torture made it more tender. No, stress hormones. Well, he was bullshitting, to yeah. be fair, so... you, I'd have you'd, him. Yeah, you'd have had him out. You're like, actually... <laughs> actually, I watched a documentary, and
1: the stress cows don't taste as good.
2: So while he was in England, he sort of played up to this because he said that he was going to satisfy his bloodlust by he would openly eat raw meat, which was heavily spiced. So when he was at a dinner party, it would be like a bit of a thrill to be like, oh, yes, I'm only having the raw meat.
1: Uh.
2: So the Royal Society then began to take an interest in Salmanaz's claims. So he came to a meeting on the 11th of August in 1703 And he let them know, look, I'm going to write a book all about my life in Formosa, so you'll be able to know what it's about then. So then at their next meeting, on 2nd February 1704, they invited along a Jesuit astronomer called Father Fontany. And he was invited to take part in a debate on Salmanaza's credentials. So they were like, before we accept you, we need to know if you're true. And he was a particularly interesting person to bring because he just arrived back from traveling in Asia and particularly China. And there was a lot of debate because Salmanaza claimed that Formosa was a part of Japan and Everyone else claimed that Formosa was a part of China. Yeah, <laughs> so they were like, "Because of this geography. is gonna, <laughs> yeah, this is gonna get him."
1: So you didn't even check which con, like which country apart. I oh, don't know. You
2: didn't check That's anything.
1: Ridiculous.
2: The Catholic astronomer commented um, afterwards that Salminazer was clearly just a young guy. He looked about twenty-two, blonde-haired, blue eyes. He had a ruddy complexion. And he could speak European languages without any hint of an Asian accent. Which I think was all things that anyone could have told you. They didn't need an expert opinion to up blonde. I've met him, basically. (laughs) He sounds French. So Salmanaza, however, he wrote an account of this debate in his book later. And he describes how they had a fierce debate over the finer points of Chinese language, saying, well... They, they never end in a consonant and da da. da. And obviously, he knew nothing about it. Yeah. And then he's it seems like it sort of descended into a bit of a slanging match, which actually went in Salmanaza's favour because Fontenay, this Jesuit astronomer, obviously was a Catholic. And at the time, that basically already gave a level of distrust over what he was saying. And there's Salmanaza, who's this brilliant church of england convert so the public opinion and any people watching was sort of already rooting for him so he could just be like you're just a catholic liar you know nothing so the royal society then brought in the big guns their new president isaac newton off of gravity and edmund haley off of haley's comet like clang have those names <laughs> So they tried to catch him out with his obviously his geographical knowledge is piss poor. So they tried to catch him out by asking things about the position of the sun, where he's from, which I think what? Exactly. It's I wouldn't know. No. So Haley like right, had this killer bro and he asked him if in Formosa does the sun ever shine all the way down a chimney? <laughs> Because basically, so its position in the tropics means that at some points the sun would be directly overhead, and therefore should be able to shine straight down. I don't know that I would know what it did in England. I've never looked at chimneys and
1: sun and thought about it. But
2: maybe if there's no electric light, that casts if your light's coming down the yeah. chimney. Funny
1: thing, if someone's asking you that, go with a yes because there's a reason you're asking. Well, instead, he did, although he wasn't so good at geography,
2: he did come up with a slightly cleverer tactic. And he said, well, the chimneys in Formosa twist and turn on the way down, so no one would ever know. Oh. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty smart. Convenient. So then they had to take a new tact and basically said, if you're from Formosa, why are you white? <laughs> yeah,
1: good point. That'd be my first question. Yeah, I'd right. Not Asian though.
2: <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah. You're pretty white there. Wide blonde though. So he basically said that because he was of noble rank, he didn't go out in the sun, and that was the other workers. So he had this more, this obviously pallor to him. Which kind of worked, because at the time, they, people's understanding, they sort of believed this permanent suntan theory that people who were black... Or had darker pigmented skin were because they came from hot countries and therefore they'd just been sun tanned, <laughs> pretty much. Is what like that or was f- from inside the womb? <laughs> that was quite a widely held belief that it was to do with just the all sun. Born white and then get darker as they get older. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So that kind oh, of yeah. they were like, oh, I guess. So the royal society didn't really believe him. But they never made any public statement denouncing him because he was really popular at the time and they were struggling to gain a bit more public support. So they kind of just left it. We're like, ugh, not worth fighting this battle. Yeah. So then, with the help of Inez, Salmanaza then published this book that I've mentioned. It was a historical and geographical description of Formosa. So the Bishop of London, he loved this convert story so much that he then offered him a place at Christchurch in Oxford, the university, so that he could study and hopefully eventually become a missionary. And he was thinking that if we send him there, he'll, can, he can start translating some of the religious texts into Formosan and then go and share it. <laughs> um, so he did go to Oxford in 1705, and he tried to give the impression that he was working really hard by... He, Every night he'd just keep a candle burning in the window so people would think he was up working all night. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's like when you um, want to leave right after the end of the day but you can do that timer on your email so it sounds about an hour later. You're like, oh yeah, I was like really late.
2: I didn't even know about this. I didn't do that. Oh, okay. could if I wanted to. Um, so instead of translating things though, he was actually adding to his book to give it more details of cannibalism he started to add in a little bit of devil worship so that he could produce a second edition and get he was like I know what the people want let's add a bit more of this in and go for it so Salmanazar, like, he only stayed at Oxford for one term before he returned to London like he wasn't getting the accolades that he wanted out there but this time Innes had now been sent back to work in the army as a chaplain in Portugal and so Salmanaza then stopped really pushing his stories as much. It suggested that he really blamed Inners as like the driving force behind this deception. And Salmanazar was now beginning to decline in popularity. I mean basically the novelty had worn off and people yeah. started thinking like these stories are a bit ridiculous now. Mm. So in 1706 he was pretty much out of favour. He was living off any benefactors he could find now and... He was claiming that he was being terrified of being sent back to Formosa because his life was in danger, so trying to ask for money that way. I mean, to be fair, he was probably true. He's like, I've made up all these stories about how I'm from, though. If they do send me back, <laughs> yeah. I'm fucked.
1: He's this French guy.
2: Yeah. So over the years, he did what, you know, people do now. Short of releasing his own fragrance, he did try and use his former celebrity status for branding and just give his name to anything so he tried to manufacture white enamel work under the name white formosa work that didn't really work so then he tried to do a line of alternative medicines with recipes that he claimed were like ancient formosan antidotes yeah, and things like that i can like see that. that more i can see that but no one gave a shit and he even tried then painting fans like in a oriental style nobody was bothered so he was becoming destitute now 1716 thankfully for him he had a group of hardcore believers and they all put into this collection that would guarantee him a pension of about 20 pounds a year patreon yeah pretty much they set up a patreon for him and in a similar vein in that they would keep paying into his fund until they died If you'd like to support us on Patreon,
1: it's patreon.com forward slash podcast.
2: Yeah, don't make them send us to Formosa. (laughs) We'll die
1: there. I can't be a cannibal. I'll be eaten. Oh God, they'll eat me first. (laughs)
2: Like more fool me for being so plump and juicy.
0: (laughs) I'm delicious.
2: I'm so delicious.
1: I think you'd be delicious. Stop thinking of eating me. (laughs) (laughs) Push comes to shove. We're stuck on a slaughter tour. Would you eat a human? Yeah. No.
2: I don't think I'd eat a human.
1: Only if I had to.
2: If the human was already dead and I hadn't seen it and someone just gave me the cooked meat and was like, here you go, eat some people meat, you're starving. And I didn't know who it was or anything and I hadn't seen the body and I hadn't seen it being cooked. I was like, fine. Yeah. It's only like when they hand you an ostrich burger at one of those farmers' markets and you're like, I've no fucking clue if this is ostrich or if this is your fucking like toe cheese.
1: Like, (laughs) I'll take it. Luke was telling me that story about the um, people who were stranded and they killed the, like they had, they had a sickly kid and then they killed him and ate him and then they got rescued the next day. (gasps) And then they didn't get done for murder because they were like, well, it's not like you're going around killing people. Like you were starving. But they did kill him. But they literally like having their breakfast. Like, oh no, there's a boat. <laughs> no, I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> was it their kid? Um, that shouldn't matter. No, I think it was like a. They were on an expedition. And he was like a guy. With, like, everyone else had a kid at home, and then they were like, "You've got no family and you're ill." <laughs> <laughs> so we're eating you, mate. Sorry. You're worth the least.
2: Yeah, so harsh. So Sam Lazer luckily hadn't had to resort to eating people yet, or himself. But the £20 a year was just about sustain him. It wasn't really enough. So he started writing for what was called at the time Grub Street. So it was the street in London called Grub Street. It's not called that anymore. It's near the Barbican, apparently. And it was notorious for, like, hack writers, like people who would just do any sort of writing, like, shitty writing. And it was poorly paid. It was unrelenting. It was constantly having work. And he would spend the last 40 years of his life constantly just every day going and doing this like commercial writing
1: so you're probably gonna know quite a lot about my story because it is very well known it is the fill pots the fire yeah burn them all (laughs) no don't burn them all I don't know what this story's about. So May 2012, there's a house fire at 18 Victory Road in Allerton, Derby. Five children were asleep upstairs, and their parents were asleep downstairs. So Jade, John, Jack, Jesse, and Jaden were all tragically killed in the fire. Um, all primary school age, all went to the same school, and there's basically one in each class. So it was like a year between each, so the school Irish was
2: twins. What does that mean? Like, when you
1: have a quick kid and then you have another one straight yeah. away,
2: so they're, in like, they're almost in the same year group.
1: Yeah. And the school said that kids were polite, well-mannered, lovable children, um, and the school were obviously absolutely devastated because that's was five pupils gone just in one awful situation. And then Dwayne, um, 13, he was in the fire as well. He was in secondary school and he died in hospital two days after the fire. So tragic tragic incident um he was again popular well liked by students and staff now the father reportedly had made valiant attempts to save the children Uh, following the fire the local catholic church had a memorial service for the children and a charity was set up by local residents to help the family as well so the parents Mick and Marie and the children lived in a council house Um, Which is, for those people who aren't from the UK, is where the local council will own certain houses and people will um, live there for free if they haven't got work themselves. Or sometimes if you work, you can pay rent to the council and they lived off benefits as well. Now, five days after the fire, the father, Mick, called a press conference and he spoke about the the fire services, the ambulance staff, and he thanked them and he began crying for his children. But people started to look at him differently after this press conference. Something about the interview didn't seem quite right and people began to ask how genuine Mick's tears were. And there's a really good picture, actually, of the policeman, obviously, who's at the press conference next to him. And the way he's side-eyeing Mick is quite telling, really, in terms of what he's thinking. Um, and he was in some of the documentaries. He was like, that That photo kind of shows what I was thinking at the time. So police were already suspicious. Um, and they concealed audio recording equipment in the couple's hotel room oh. during this time. So obviously they'd be... I they'd didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could do that. I, th- I mean... It is a bit weird, isn't it? Just to think that, oh, they've gone through this tragedy and then we're going to stick some equipment in their room. They must
2: have had they must have had some evidence before they were allowed to do that. I think so. You can't even search a house without a warrant. Never mind, like, mm. record people secretly.
1: Yeah, so, I think this was what sparked it. That, um, they looked for the cause of the fire and they found that there had been petrol that had been put through the letterbox. So it was definitely malicious. Um so they knew it was arson and I think that sort of raised a bit of a red flag and they knew that they couldn't rule out the parents and you'll see why later.
2: See that always fascinates me how they can tell the cause of a fire. Mm. I think that's like the cleverest thing because everything's all black and burnt and they're like oh we managed to trace it back to this room in the house Mm. and it must I'm like I think that's brilliant I should read up on it really
1: someone else just tell me. Maybe it's dead obvious and
2: do the research Fine.
1: for me! <laughs> so, yeah, if there's any past firemen, ask my plumber. He used to be a fireman. The media had also started to get knowledge of the couple's unusual living situation and Mick's past. So I'm going to tell you a bit about that first. So, July 1978, age 21, Mick had attempted to murder his girlfriend that was 17 at the time. Well, that will cause suspicion. <laughs> there you go. So, prior to that, he had shot her with a crossbow. What? Because her skirt was too short. Well... I mean, wh- that's some old-fashioned punishment there.
2: Old-fashioned? <laughs> it's fucking Game of Thrones. Yeah. But talk about an inappropriate response. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and he'd also cracked her kneecap with a hammer <gasps> because she'd focused on a baby while babysitting it. Oh, my God. And He was like, "Talk to me." So he tried
2: I'll smash your kneecap.
1: Yeah, he tried. Oh
2: my! Was he not? How was
1: he not in locked up forever? Well, he was locked up, but not forever. So he tried to kill her because she broke up with him in a letter. So well, she you was would you wouldn't not... do it face yeah. to face? Yeah, well, that's why. So he stabbed her twelve times, <laughs> and then he stabbed her mother for trying to help her daughter. He got seven years in prison. He was released after three years. That's disgusting. I mean, he should have got... I think he should have got a full sentence for murder for that. It's just... It's not... It she just happened not to die, but he... I know it's attempted murder, but... Something's fucked up that he yeah. got three years.
2: Crossbows, smashing e-caps, 12 stabs, yeah. and the mum. You'd think that he'd get longer sentence just for the fact that there was two victims. He should have mm. had two convictions. Yeah, it's ridiculous.
0: <gasps> I've so... never known
2: something that... I mean. <laughs> No, like the whole time we've been doing this. Sometimes I'm like, okay, that sentence was crazy long. Or sometimes you're like, oh dear, they got out after 15 years. But what can you do? Mm, That's the I'm genuinely years. shocked.
1: Three years, like, is like a house burger, isn't it? That's I think I've been grounded do. for longer than that. <laughs> yeah, it's completely wrong. And it, like, clearly, he's a dangerous person. So in 1986, he was out of prison. He married Pamela Lomax, and he had three children. And she began to hate him um, because he was awful. He was just a horrid person. And she was basically really relieved once he started to cheat on her. She was like, oh, but thank God. Maybe he'll
2: pick someone else. Yeah,
1: maybe he'll move on now. I'll just stop doing my hair. So... <laughs> yeah. Um, so he cheated on her with Heather Keogh, um, who was only 14 and he was 37. So he's a murderer and a massive pedo. Yeah. So she dated him. Until she was 16, and then at that point, she ran away from home and moved in with Mick, and they had two children. And he was, again, a horrible person. Wait, he, sorry, just tell me what her name is again. Heather Koe. Oh, my God.
2: And so she went and lived with him?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know what they're seeing in him. He's hideous. He's massively violent, but basically he's preying on women who, like, he's mega confident, and I think he's just getting women. He were really kind of shy or vulnerable, and obviously really young. And maybe he's, he's got a council house. Yeah, he's got a house. He's maybe coming across as charming at the beginning, and then maybe scares the shit out of them. Um, but that he gets through a lot of women. Mm. But he's just awful. He's an awful, awful human being. So he began to beat her. And as her sons got older, she had two boys, he would encourage them to beat her as well. So he's making them into kids who were just violent towards their parents. God knows what they're like now, because what hope have those children got? They're like, this is a good idea, beat your own mother. She left him and they began a custody battle for the children and he tried to discredit Heather, but she won... Um, and there were there were lots of witnesses of the abuse. There was someone who said or had seen him um she always had black eyes, um she you know, we saw her in the street getting being by him or dragged inside. So people rallied around her and she got custody for the children, thank goodness, and she took them out of that situation. But not until they were you know, the damage had been done and he'd been abusing her for years. Um, Mick also headbutted a colleague, but he didn't go to prison for that. So he just got um he was sentenced, but it was like a, I don't know, a sentence that you do later or something. Suspended. That's it. Then he met Marie Duffet, um, 19, and a single mother. And when he met her, she had just left an abusive relationship. So she was in a really vulnerable situation. She's single mother. She's scared. And I think he latched onto that. But her ex was so abusive that he'd totally controlled her and he'd pinned her down and shaved her whole head once. Mm. And she kind of was a bit blasé about it. Like, family and friends... was like, oh, I wanted a pixie cut. Yeah, like, family and friends like, how did you let him get away with this abuse? Because you're was being just like, abused. Like she was like, eh. But later on, she did talk about, in court, how her own father had abused her as well. She needs to, like, get them to, like, pit them against each other. Like, get
2: both the abusers in the same room and just, like... Battle each other until they both
1: die. Well, they'll join forces and become some sort of mega abusers. Like a transformer. I think she needs to not get abused and meet a nice man. That, definitely. Yeah. So... Or just not meet a man. Do your own thing. Do your own haircut. After a year of marriage to my read, Mick... I don't know, after a year of dating, my Reed, Mick met Lisa Willis, who was 16. I mean, he's oh proper old by now. She was a single mother and she was also an orphan. So again, another vulnerable young woman. And he began an affair with her, but he didn't hide it. He basically moved Lisa into the house. Right. So he was living with both of them then. So in 2003, he married my Reed and um, Lisa was a bridesmaid at the wedding. And they Whoa. all lived together in a three-bedroom house. And he was continuously getting them both pregnant. So they were having a lot of children. And he would beat both women if they didn't behave. He was totally in control. And the whole household revolved around what Mick wanted. So everything came second place to his He wants whims. something to occupy his time. Well, he did not want to work. Um, Clearly. He needs to
2: you know devil makes work for idle hands mm. go take up knitting and stop beating your wife yeah
1: but he he was in the media quite a lot as well so um the first time he got into the papers was 2006 and he'd requested a larger council house. man gets married <laughs> yeah but he'd said i want a larger council house i've got so many kids this is ridiculous give us a, a bigger house to live in. Um, but obviously the papers got wind of his living situation with his wife and his mistress. So they were mostly reporting about that anyway, but mm-hmm. they were like painting him as this absolute arsehole, which he was and saying, you know, this horrible man demands a council house. Who is he? Like, you know, it was all like benefits Britain. That's, People love a bit of that. Yeah. They? they love a bit of that. So that was nationally put in the papers. Then he was on a documentary that Anne Widdicombe, um, made, um, called Anne Widdicombe versus the Benefits Culture, and she would go around talking to people on benefits, and he was one of those people, and she went to their house, witnessed quite a lot of the stuff that he was doing in terms of him, the two women were working, and him, he would just take control of the money, so she she asked the women, you can see clips online, um, oh, how much is your rent, or how much, um, how much is your council tax, and they'd be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, Mick does it all and they had to ask him for money so if they wanted like, like he wouldn't give him money for a haircut or something but if they wanted like some shoes for one of the children they'd have to ask him for the money even though it's their money, it was disgraceful, but she So he wasn't worried
2: that he was going to get caught or anything was he? Not. He's obviously quite confident that he's like, I'll tell newspapers about me. I'll have a TV crew come round. Yeah. Like, he wasn't... He loved it. He wasn't he lo- thinking, I've got things to hide. No,
1: he loved it. He loved the limelight. Um, but in this documentary, she got work for him because he he said... No, he didn't say what he'd done. He said, oh, you know, I've got a criminal record. Poor me. I can't get work. So she got him a couple of jobs and... On the documentary, they filmed him at work. Yeah, everything's fine. Brilliant, they've got him this work. As soon as the cameras went, he didn't show up anymore. So he didn't want to work. He didn't want to... And Whittacombe um, no. didn't go
2: to Parliament for the next nine months. <laughs> yeah. She
1: had Ooh. twins. <laughs> so uh, he also she didn't... <laughs> <laughs> he also didn't show any affection to the children. Mostly ignored them. Like, he's just a massive shit. But then also he got to meet another massive shit because he went on the Jeremy Kyle show which if you are American it's a bit like the Jerry Springer show if Jerry Springer had multiple personalities because one minute he's like
2: oh poor you. He's like mate I respect you. I respect you for coming on here and doing this. And they'll be like get a job. Get a job. You're scum. You're a fucking
0: filthy rat aren't you? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. It just bends with the wind just Jeremy. Um Loads of people love it, though not so much anymore. Uh, and it's basically about how can you live with your wife, yeah. and then the mistress is there. Well, but... And also,
2: I used to hate it watching it because you'd be like, "How are all these people getting sex?" Yeah, they need to show that in Parliament when they're talking about the
1: privatization of dental surgeries, <laughs> because that and Bullseye. So Mick and Reed, um would also go dogging as well. Obviously. Um. So she reportedly became pregnant by some random man while dogging. And um, Mick, I mean, the the paper said forced her to have an abortion. I don't know if he convinced her or forced her, but there was a suggestion. Like that like you probably, like if he's that controlling. Yeah, sounds like, and also I think, I'm not sure she really was that into going dogging. I think that was more like being coerced. So he was extremely abusive. Um, he was given a caution for slapping Marie and dragging her by the hair. Three months before the fire, and this kind of is where things started to escalate to the point where we got this fire, uh, Lisa, the mistress, moved out of the house, and she took her five children with her that she'd had, four of them she'd had with Mick, and then one of them had already been a child.
2: Wait, so there were ten children there in that house? There were eleven
1: children living in that house, oh in a three-bed. Um, she t- basically told um, Mick that they were going swimming. It was a big tribe of them going swimming and then just never went back. But people who knew um, Mick, Myreed and Lisa knew that he preferred Lisa. He was quite open about it. And he he said a lot of the time, oh, I should have married Lisa because now it seems like I like Myreed more, but actually not really. Um, and I think she just got sick of like the abuse and living there. She just was yeah. walking away. So he decided that his next kind of thing to occupy his time's next plan is he's going to win those kids in a custody battle. And I think maybe he thought that Lisa would come back and live with him because the kids were there. Yeah. So he wanted to beat her at court. So he began making up stories that Lisa's family had threatened him and he'd get these like fake phone calls where he'd be like, oh, it's them again, they've said this. And he'd go and tell everyone what they'd apparently said on the phone because um, he thought that was really good evidence. And he said that they'd threatened to burn down his house. So he told the police about that. He was kind of thinking, oh, I'm sowing the seeds here. Um, he also said he had a text with her saying she'll burn the house down. And he, he went around telling people that he had a plan to get the kids. He was like, it's fine, it's fine, I'm going to get them, I'm going to get them back. So then the fire happened at their house the day he was due to go to court about the custody of his children with Lisa. So this was something that the police like gave them the suspicions because they thought that can't be coincidence this day. So
2: his plan was to set up a trail of fake phone calls saying that Lisa's going to burn my house down, then burn the house down and kill five children to get his mistress back.
1: No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just wait. So, Mick and my Reed were arrested for murder, along with Paul Mosley, who was a family friend. So, Mick and my Reed had had a threesome the night before the fire, ...on the snooker table in the house. Wicked. How have they got space for a snooker table? Who's occupying the children? Uh, Well, they're all upstairs in bed. But how have they got room for a snooker table in a three-bed house with 11 children? (laughs) Then they said they fell asleep, and when they woke up, the fire was in the house. So Myrid went outside and phoned the police. And Mick said that he went to the back, got a ladder to try and save the children who were all... He kept saying in the back bedroom. He was like, they're in the back bedroom, they're in the back bedroom. Um, And that's what he told the police as well. But the children weren't in the back bedroom. They were in all the different bedrooms in the house, because obviously there's 11... No, there were six of them, because Lucy had taken her five. And neighbours started coming round to try and help. Um, And they said Mick didn't try and save the children, but he went over the road to check on his wife. So the day after the fire, there were five children dead at this point because they found them, they died of smoke inhalation straight away and one was in hospital and Mick had refused to visit the one in hospital because he said, oh no, I've got to go to court. Oh, for his custody back? Yeah. Th- this, the day of the fire, we'd lost five children that day.
2: And his alibi for not starting the fire was... I was having a threesome on the snooker table at the time. And then I went to sleep in the lounge. Oh, it couldn't have been me. I was having a threesome. Like, why would you? (laughs) Why would you? They just got to get that
1: elbow (laughs) in
2: there. Like, who would start a fire when you've got such a powerful
1: penis? So, and also on the day, so he'd he'd gone for a coffee and gone to get ready for court. And the police basically said, mate, you're going to have to go to the hospital your child is fighting for his life there. You, you need to go. So he went to the hospital, but when he was at the hospital, people kept turning up like Paul Mosley, and he kept going off with like, these secret conversations with them, and it all just seemed really weird. He didn't seem that, that worried about his son. He seemed more worried about these chats he was having and didn't really show much concern for his child. Also, apparently, like was slapping someone on the arse being like, oh, I'd love a bit of that. And oh just really God. grim. Um, so this is where they found the petrol at Mick and and they also found petrol on clothes that they had in the house. So they all pled not guilty at court, and this is where the court heard about what they thought the plan was. So it wasn't that he would burn the house down and kill the children, what he wanted to do was start the fire himself and then him to be the saviour, save the children, go to court, and that day, and for everyone to be like, oh, no, obviously Lisa must have started to start the fire. He saved them. He's the better parent.
2: But then the reports say that he didn't try very hard to save the children.
1: I, yeah, that's the thing. I don't know if... Um, they, I think he climbed up and they weren't in the back bedroom and then he wasn't willing to put, like, to go in and put himself at risk because the fire took hold of the house really, really quickly. Um, and I think it was just more difficult than he thought. Right. So then he sort of backtracked and didn't want to get involved and kind of wanted himself to look like the victim. But it it just didn't go to plan. So... They changed their charges to manslaughter because they, it became apparent that he, he obviously didn't want the children to die. He just wanted to be the and hero. He a shit. Mick's former wives and girlfriends came and testified of the abuse that he'd caused them. So in terms of character, they totally discredited it. It was also revealed that Reed had taken an overdose in February, which I think was probably just after Lisa had left. So she obviously. Well, she was going to get all of it there. Going to get all she? the brunt of him being angry about her leaving. She's still there. She's the one he doesn't really want as much. Um, a witness also claimed hearing Paul Mosley say that he really should turn himself in. Why is Paul being dragged into this? Well, I think he was in on the
2: plan. Paul sounds like the voice of reason here. Well,
1: he didn't mm. turn himself in, did he? Did he it? bring the petrol? He had petrol in his place. Hmm, Paul. Mick received a life sentence. That's 25 years in the UK. And he has to serve at least 15 years, which I think is ridiculous. Um, my Reed received 17 years, but will serve half of that. And Paul Mosley received 17 years as well.
2: I really don't understand why. Like, again, we've done a lot of cases now, and we've talked about people that have been put away for life, meaning life, and people that have had two or three consecutive life sentences that they have to serve. But even manslaughter against, manslaughter against five... Yeah, six. Manslaughter Against Six should add up to more, surely. I feel like there's some... I don't understand. I feel like he's let off lightly all the time. Yeah, he is. Three years for two stabbings, nothing for any of the abuse, and then just one life sentence for six children dying when he meant to set fire to the house. Mm. I'm not happy about this, Lucy.
1: I mean, he's obviously a complete um, narcissist... A really violent individual hes i mean he's just probably one of the worst people we've looked at just continuously just causing harm to others just being abusive like actively abusive all the time like no one but the thing is people are how is he getting all these women to abuse that's what i hate about it but um yeah just you just seem to get away with everything um So from prison, he still carries on being a total shit. So he wrote to one of his sons from prison saying, I really tried, son, but I just could not get to them. If only I'd not put fancy antique wood up everywhere. So yes, I do blame myself. Like he genuinely thought, oh, well, that antique wood was kindling. So, oh, whoops daisy that was the problem. No, it was the fire that you clearly started. Yeah, it was the petrol that you poured through the letterbox." Um, so his son, Michael, still believes that he's innocent. What? Please don't write to us. Your half-brothers and sisters are dead! I
2: know. Oh my god. I mean, sometimes you got I feel la- like my
1: brain isn't working today. What is happening? But I, To be fair, sometimes you got to latch onto something, haven't you? Like, would you want to believe that of your own dad? Well, you know that he beats your mum. Yeah. Like, that's not a secret. I don't know which kid. Maybe it's one of the ones who also beat her. Even um, worse, then you definitely... Then you've got proof. Yeah. He also wrote a letter saying, I don't know if you know this, but 6,000 worth of fishing tackle and 1,500 pounds worth of bikes were stolen from my property. Like, no one gives a shit, mate. And he believes that he's going to be freed. Like, he genuinely believes that he's going to be freed. And when he does, he's going to sue the police and they're going to give him loads of money. Sounds like he is going to be freed. He's been put in an isolated cell in prison. I think because all the other prisoners just want to murder him all of the time. So he has to be. Uh, Watched 24 hours a day in basically like a cage-like cell at Wakefield Prison. Oh, one of those prison. plastic <laughs> box ones. Yeah. And Maureen has become a witch in prison. Wicked. Wicker. So, if you enjoyed that episode,
2: you can head over to Twitter and... Tell us. I love it. popping off there. I love when people tell us they liked it. On people Twitter. tweet, is a thing. You're going to be able to do it even more now. They're going to do more characters. Really? So really adding those superlatives about how good we are. <laughs>
1: and oh, that's you... at Slaughter the Pod. At Slaughter the Pod. Sorry. And if you can take a minute to rate and review and press subscribe, that helps us a lot because that means that more people can find us. So that is very useful. And you can also join the Facebook group if you like. Yeah. Just Let's... search... Are supposed to feel after in facebook and we'll pop up and you can join and tell other people about the crimes that you like from anywhere in the world we will not judge you but don't ask us to do them because you know we don't do that unless we're asking about slash and dash yeah we do for slash and dash okay um and you can vote for slash and dash on patreon um you can buy merch from threadless and the other one Spreadshirt. <laughs>